as the end of 1943 was reached and four years of war were behind us, we began to think in terms of a satisfactory conclusion, to the conflict. It certainly seemed, to be within sight, even though, it might be uphill and a little way off. Such thinking would have appeared imbecilic, during those dark days, just after France had collapsed like a pack of cards. Now, a state of affairs had been reached, which allowed confident optimism. Although hard and costly fighting was being reported, overall success was being achieved on all land fronts. In Italy, Russia, and the Far East, Allied armies were advancing. The sky, in the main, was beginning to belong to the Allied air forces, with each succeeding month bringing, with it, a more obvious disparity. Even the grim, never-ending battle of the Atlantic appeared, finally, to be capable of being won. The Mediterranean Sea was, once more, largely under the control of the Allies. Sicily was in Allied hands and no longer an Axis naval and Luftwaffe stronghold. As they advanced northwards in Italy, the Allied armies captured Axis airfields and naval bases. Then, not only were these places no longer used against the Allies, they were taken over and used by the Allies against the Axis powers. In the Arctic, December 1943 saw a defining moment. By brilliant tactics and great skill, the German battleship Scharnhorst was outmaneuvered and sunk. At home, we were all greatly relieved by the removal of this powerful ship. Scharnhorst had lain in wait for the Arctic convoys, for a while. Because of the destruction she could wreak, if let loose among merchant ships, her mere presence posed a huge threat. This threat required a strong British naval presence in the area, at a time the Royal Navy's resources were stretched thin. In the total darkness of an Arctic winter, a huge naval engagement took place, which resulted in a victory for the Royal Navy. The advantage this gave the Allies, in respect of their Arctic convoys to Russia, was even further enhanced in February 1944. Although already seriously damaged, by manned midget submarines in September 1943, Bismarck's sister ship Tirpitz remained a possible threat. She would have been seaworthy, again, in mid-1944, had not she been bombed in February of that year. This bombing, added to damage caused by the midget submarines, put Tirpitz out of commission and beyond repair. The loss of these two battleships, added to the December 1942 sinking of major German surface ships in the Barents Sea, finally removed the serious threat these major warships had posed to the Arctic convoys. Long-range Luftwaffe planes and U-boats remained a risk, but these could be defended against, by small naval ships. The larger ships of the Royal Navy could be deployed, elsewhere, where they were required. During the war I found it rather strange that news, from inside Germany, could become as widely known about as our own daily news. It appeared that, the longer the war went on, the more information leaked out. I would have thought the Germans would have preferred, that much of this information not become known to us. Certainly, they must have found some of it embarrassing. One, of such items of news, involved the loss of the German battleship Hipper, along with other naval ships, in the Battle of the Barents Sea. When these losses became known to Hitler, he was beside himself with rage. His wrath was incited to such an extent, he threatened to disband the whole of the German surface fleet. Admiral Redder, Grand Admiral of the German Navy, was berated by Hitler for 90 minutes. Redder, then, resigned. Dunitz, the U-boat commander-in-chief, was installed as Grand Admiral in Redder's place. Dunitz persuaded Hitler not to disband the surface fleet. However, the surface fleet was not a factor, for the remainder of the war. The unsuccessful foray of Scharnhorst, notwithstanding. Another defining action, in July 1943, presaged the eventual defeat of the Axis powers. Although the Russian Spring Offensive, of 1943, had shown promise, people in the United Kingdom were aware that things were, very much, on a knife's edge. Russian advances had been made, 
but the Germans appeared not to be defeated to the extent they were in North Africa, for example. On the 5th July, news came of a German attack in the region of Kursk, in the central part of the long Russian front line. People in Britain kept their fingers crossed that, this time, the Russians would hold. Too often, beforehand, strong German pressure had resulted in German advances. Over the next few days, astounding stories and reports came out of the region of Kursk. It became clear, an almighty and awesome battle was taking place. This battle was, later, confirmed as the greatest tank battle ever fought. The British public was always keenly interested, in the situation on the Eastern Front but, during the Battle of Kursk, they were utterly enthralled. When the result of this titanic battle became known, about a week later, many people were jubilant. With the Allied invasion of Sicily on July 10, 1943, the chance of the Germans sending more troops and equipment to Russia, to help resist the attack, evaporated overnight, this virtually ensured that, after this enormous and pivotal victory, the Russian advance barely faltered. The drive towards Germany, even though there were minor stalling and a couple of pauses to consolidate and regain strength, continued inexorably. The victory at Kursk, after tremendous effort and the expenditure of enormous amounts of manpower and materiel, could be said to have broken the Germans back. We, in Britain, read and heard many communiques and first-hand stories about the matter. Our newspapers were, understandably, crammed with all of the usual, diagrams and maps, while the BBC, also, reported all the details fully. The name of Kursk, was blazoned across the British media. To the people in the UK, the battle was huge news. In Britain we spent much time, listening and reading about the matter. It was reported that over 2 million men took part and that over 6,000 tanks and over 5,000 aircraft were engaged. In addition, the Russians mustered over 11,000 field guns and artillery pieces, while the Germans had about 9,000. Forewarned of the German plans to attack, by spies, General Zhukov, the Russian commander, was said to have committed 40% of the Russian infantry and armor to the sector. Zhukov, we later learned, allowed the Germans to attack first and then, after drawing them into minefields and prepared positions, counter-attacked with devastating ferocity. The battle lasted for over a week, before the Germans were, clearly, beaten. Their retreat, although it started slowly, gradually gained in momentum and, except for a few minor glitches and holdups, continued until the war's end in 1945. School, in England, broke up for the summer holiday in the middle of July. This holiday, at that time, was between four and six weeks in duration. For the record, we had about two weeks at Easter and about two and a half weeks for Christmas and the New Year celebrations. There was, also, a half-term holiday which, as the name suggests, occurred in the middle of each of the terms. Half-term holidays were, I believe, although I might have forgotten, only an afternoon off. I mention all this because, it enables me to fix the time of an important occurrence for me. As the lengthy battle of Kursk was winding down, I received a present which exemplifies the scale of shortages then prevailing in Britain. Upon arriving home for the summer holidays in 1943, I had left Slough for good. The school returned to London at that time and, in September, the full school reopened again in its historic building in Hammersmith. Some parents, of pupils at the school in 1939, had opted not to have their children evacuated. Instead of more arbitrary measures, the school governors had allowed a skeleton school to continue in Hammersmith. In September 1943, these two parts were joined, to form the full and traditional school. It was good to be home, even though it was now in another house. My mother had left her mother's place amicably, I hastened to add, and was renting a home that would be more suitable for the two of us. It was, though, yet another change of abode for me. On the first possible occasion, after my homecoming mother and I went to visit Gran. I was completely unsuspecting, 
of anything unusual happening. Imagine my delight, when my mother and grand presented me with a brand new bicycle, my first bike ever. Needless to say, I was greatly surprised and completely overwhelmed with pleasure. I was told, that the two of them had wanted to acknowledge my scholarship success, of the previous July. At that time, complete bicycles were impossible to obtain. As a result, it had taken over a year, for the two of them to be able to give me this handsome gift. My mother told me what had happened, since they first had the idea of giving me this present. Apparently, they had found a possible supplier, operating from a shop in Hammersmith. After telling them of the impossibility of obtaining a ready-made bike, he advised them to have a cycle built from spare parts. These, he had said, could be obtained sometimes, although only infrequently. The man was commissioned, to do this. Saving each part, as it became available, it took about 11 months before he was able to construct a complete bike. It was the finest bike anyone, anywhere, ever owned. I called it, my ASP bike-my all-spare parts bike and I loved it, like a child. If I could have taken it to bed, I suspect I would have done so. The bike gave me many years of excellent service. In the final years of the war, my bike gave me a certain freedom to move about. After the war, I joined the Youth Hostel Association and cycled many thousands of miles, throughout the country. This, sightseeing gave me much pleasure, and helped provide knowledge, of my country. Spare parts for bicycles, of course, were not the only thing in critically short supply. Our bicycle parts experience, would slash could have been repeated with, literally, hundreds of everyday things. At the end of the month of August 1943, the RAF raided Hamburg again. This time, catastrophically. For four nights, they bombed severely and heavily. The second attack, of the four, included a deliberate incendiary attack which caused a firestorm of devastating proportions. Adding to the Hamburg residents' misery, reports were heard that the US also bombed on two days in this period. Eventually, we heard that over 50,000 deaths were inflicted, in these raids, and the same number of people were injured. Estimates, later, intimated that over 800,000 people were made homeless, in this series of heavy raids alone. No one in Britain, particularly those who had experienced being bombed, could fail to be moved by the reports. However, everyone was confident that the horrendous raid, and others like it, would be proved crucial to the ending of the war. We overlooked, like the Germans before us, that the decision to halt a war is not made by bombed out and suffering civilians. Only Dresden, and Hiroshima, with the atomic bomb, would suffer as severely as Hamburg did, between 24 July, and 3 August, 1943. The Sicilian campaign was winding down, at the time of the Hamburg firestorm. It finished on the August 17, 1943. On the fourth anniversary of the beginning of the war, 3rd of September, the British 8th Army landed in Italy, after heavy bombardment by British naval ships. Troops were reported safely ashore at Reggio. Resistance was said to be, virtually, non-existent. At home, we were heartened by this. Talk, of an easy campaign, was commonly heard during the early days after the Italian invasion. This attitude was strengthened, when news of Italy's surrender was announced. People began to think that the Germans would withdraw back and out of, Italy, as a result of their allies' announcement. Nothing could have been proved more incorrect. Totally ignoring the Italian presence, in their own country, the Germans showed their contempt for their erstwhile ally by continuing to fight. Not only that, they overcame some slight Italian military resistance to their plans and, to all intents and purposes, occupied Italy themselves. The loss of Italian support, caused the Germans no problem. The Wehrmacht proved a stubborn foe, during the very heavy fighting that took place throughout Italy. During the next few weeks, the British public heard reports of further landings in Italy. The most important of these landings occur at Taranto and Salerno. 
heavy naval gunfire precedes these landings which, overall, were successful, more, particularly, at Taranto. Later information tended to cast doubt, on the reports of immediate success at Salerno. In fact, the situation at Salerno hung in the balance and only drastic action by the Allies, ensured the invasion forces were not re-embarked. It was only indicative of the times, but I can recall the public's attitude, to the possibility that things might not be going as well as had been thought. In 1943, as afterwards, people tended to think it was only a glitch which would be overcome, easily. During the dark days, people had tended to think the worst, immediately. Both landings were covered by considerable naval presence. Respecting the landings at Taranto, I remember hearing of the participation of, HMS Howe and HMS King George V, two powerful battleships. I could well imagine, the weight of shells these two ships could dispatch onto the enemy lines. At the time, I could have quoted the caliber and number of guns of each ship, without having to look it up in a book. I could also have named the ship's complements and other important details of the two ships' fighting capacity. Many other lads could do this, too, at that time. Military equipment, took the place of football and cricket teams, for those of us growing up in those days. There was nothing remarkable, about this type of knowledge we had stored in our brains. Schoolboys had learned such trivia for ages. It was, however, much more fun learning all these details, when things were going well for the Allies. The keen interest wasn't so great, and the facts and details were much less pleasing, when things were going badly. Again, not unlike supporting sports teams. The summer holidays of 1943, saw me entering a new phase of my life in a number of ways. With a working mother, my life involved a number of, extra, household duties and responsibilities. This wasn't, by any stretch of the imagination, unique at that time. Many households had the father away, in the services. In spite of this or, maybe, because of this, working mums were not as common as might be imagined. This might cause some surprise, in light of the large number of married women working at the end of the century. It is true many women were working, but most of these, over 70% hash, were unmarried. The working women, who were married, were usually childless and, often, had husbands in the services. Working mothers, unless forced by circumstances to do so, weren't as common, during the war, as people today might think. This social phenomenon appears to have grown, with the vociferously proclaimed independence of women and the insatiable desire for more possessions. Neither of these things became widespread, until well after the war finished, at least in Britain. Household jobs, of course, were not foreign to me. Like many of my generation, these were part of life. Children, generally, tended to become mature, much earlier than they seemed to at the end of the century. They were not allowed, to remain children for long. This was true, particularly, during the war years. Much of the day, during school holidays, I was left to my own devices. There was little organized entertainment but, like others, I found plenty to do. This wasn't always doing chores, by a long chalk, and reading occupied much of my time. With mother working in Baker Street, house cleaning, cooking, or, at least, preparing food, were my daily jobs. Ironing and washing of the clothes, also, was done to help. Washing clothes meant hand washing. Washing machines weren't, then, available. Some of the weekly wash consisted of woolen items, but most of the weekly wash was made up articles made of cotton, or a cotton mix. I recall only one man-made fiber as part of the weekly wash. This was, occasionally, nylon. The plethora of man-made fibers, we have today, was not in existence. The bulk, of the weekly wash, would be boiled in the copper, beforehand. Boiling was a time-honored method of cleaning in, where necessary, sterilizing items. 
boiling necessitated the lighting of, and the tending to, the fire under the copper. At this stage in the war, coal was usually available, although the coal storage space was a fair distance away from the scullery. Obviously, there was insufficient space to store any coal in the scullery. This meant that all coal, for the copper fire, had to be fetched. This naturally, wasn't hard or heavy work, but it was time-consuming. I don't know if detergents were then invented. I do know, that the washing of clothes relied on soap and soap derivatives. Most of the weekly wash was tackled, using large bars of yellow soap, made by sunlight, I recall, and a lot of muscle power. Curtains, bath towels, tablecloths, blankets, double sheets, to name a few items, were very heavy and cumbersome when wet. After the washing, came the rinsing. Rinsing, too, was of course a similarly heavy job. A large, wooden, clothes wringer, took care of much of the water in the wet, rinsed clothes. Then, in good weather, the wash was hung on the line in the garden, to dry. When dry, the clothes etc., would be placed on a clothes horse and in front of the kitchen fire to air, make certain they were really dry, as damp clothing and bedding was not considered a good practice. I also did the shopping. It might be of interest to relate, examples of this regular chore. A chore I performed, weekly, for many years. There was nothing even resembling, a modern supermarket. Napoleon is said to have called the English, a nation of shopkeepers. Up until long after the war, this was true. Individually owned and operated shops, was the norm. Competition was great. Seldom was there a locality, in which shopkeepers were not in competition with others plying the identical trade. Many of these shops, the majority I would estimate, were family-run businesses. The system had advantages and disadvantages, of course. Competition kept the price down and allowed personal service to flourish, particularly before the war. On the downside, it meant that many shops had to be visited, to obtain the weekly household shopping. I would set out with a couple of shopping bags-containers, carrier bags, grocery bags and the like, commonly, were not used by shopkeepers. People were expected, to provide a means of transporting their purchases. Very occasionally, the pre-war practice of delivery boys survived. This service stopped, with the war, because of a shortage of suitable help and a huge reduction in the amount purchased, due to rationing. Only with the largest families, was it likely that one person might encounter any difficulty in carrying the weekly rations home in a bag. Before starting the description of my weekly shopping trip, however, I should mention the overall system that prevailed. It was necessary, particularly at the beginning of the war, to register with a supplier, i.e., butcher, grocer, etc. This shopkeeper would detach a counterfoils, from each ration book supplied by the person registering. This counterfoils, when presented to the requisite Ministry of Food Officer, entitled the shopkeeper to purchase sufficient goods to satisfy the probable demand of the people registering with him. Then, when that person called at the shop, the ration book had to be presented to the shopkeeper. Upon supplying the items, the shopkeeper would detach the required coupons from the ration books. These coupons would, in turn, be forwarded to the Ministry of Food for checking. A very time-intensive operation. Coupons had to be attached to the ration book. Loose coupons were not legal. It was possible to change one supplier. However, except when one moved out of the district, the work and aggravation this caused was, usually, not worth the effort. This meant, then, that people were obliged to shop at the shop they were registered at. There was little choice, without a lot of fuss and effort being expended. In any case, the only thing that would alter if one changed suppliers, would be the personal attitude of the shopkeeper. Goods were, mainly, very standard. There was little or no choice, of brands or trademarks. If more than one brand was available, I believe I am right in saying that the supplier was obliged to carry them all. 
People, today, would not believe the standardization and the sameness that existed during the war. Butter was butter, and the same applied to sugar, margarine, cheese, which was, nearly, all rat trap cheddar, bread, all baked to the same formula and with the constituents controlled by regulations. It was called national bread, one didn't shop for brands. One was thankful, to get whatever was available. I never experienced any difficulties with the rationing system, or the regulations that controlled our food supply. That is, other than there wasn't enough. The trip, to purchase the weekly food supplies, followed a regular pattern which was, only seldom, varied. My first call, invariably, was to the grocer. Of course, there would be a queue. This might be of about a dozen people. However, if a very rare commodity was known to have been delivered, it might be twice or, even, three times that number. Eventually, I would be at the head of the line and in a position to be served. The grocer or, sometimes, his assistant, would take possession of the two ration books. These, I was required to produce, prior to being served. After checking, to see that valid coupons were in the books, I would be asked my requirements. I would, quickly, run down the list of basics. Sugar, butter, margarine, tea, eggs, cheese and bacon. Sugar was usually available. Butter, often, would not be, which meant having more margarine instead, or, I could have left it, in the hopes that butter would be available before the coupons expired. Coupons, for nearly all ration goods, could be saved and used at any time during a period. The grace period differed, according to the item. For butter, and the other fats, I believe it was about a month. Tea, the next item on my list was, usually, available. Eggs were often unavailable and only seldom was there any good bacon, if there was any. This, I appreciate, is a matter of personal choice. Graham loved streaky bacon, which is more fat than lean. She could always get her favorite cuts. Mother and I, both, preferred back bacon. We were, usually, unlucky, cheese was, often, available, but it was mousetrap cheddar, only. There was no choice. Each available item, would be taken from the shelves, or the back of the counter, by the shopkeeper. There was no help-yourself policy. Indeed the shop layout, invariably, precluded this being done. It was known, for the sugar to be measured from bulk and placed in a small bag. Earlier in the war, it wasn't uncommon to have butter taken from a bulk supply and carefully weighed out. This died out as the war progressed and butter became, commonly, wrapped. The usual weight, of a wrapped butter package, was 8 ounces this was a family of four's weekly ration. The grocer became very adept, at dividing these 8 ounces, packets into 2 ounces or 4 ounces portions, to satisfy people who were not entitled to the full 8 ounces indeed, packets, later, came marked with gradations to help in this task. Talking of measuring and weighing, one has to realize that, nearly, or not quite, just under or just over, were words never used when dealing with rations. Exactness was essential. People would not tolerate, any discrepancy, obviously. This added, to the time taken to be served, sometimes, considerably. Cheese was, invariably, cut from a huge round or wheel and with the rind still on it. Scales were in common use throughout the war and many goods required weighing in the shop. All of which added, greatly, to the time taken to serve a customer, but this, at least, could not be blamed on the war. It was normal practice, in the shops of the time. After the ration goods had been dealt with, inquiry would be made, or chalk boards examined, to see what else was available. Flour was, often, obtained in a one-pound bag, with the shopkeeper rationing supply, during the period when flour was not rationed. This unofficial rationing, was carried out by shopkeepers, for most items not actually rationed. By and large, this system had the support of customers. 
the system meant that regular customers could, usually, be assured of obtaining, at least some of, the particular commodity. Tin fruit and other tin goods, were sometimes available, in exchange for points coupons. Each person was allocated, a set number of points for each period. This number could vary, like the ration allowance, for a critical item. But, unlike normal rations, points could be used for items of one's own choice. This meant that you could have, for example, tin baked beans, tin sardines, tin pilchards, tin fruit, tin meat, corned beef or spam, tin peas, tin beetroot, tin soup, or many other usual items of tin grocery, if they were available. Prunes, dried apricots, rice, macaroni, tapioca, currants and sultanas, fish pastes, marmalade, jellies and jams, were also on points. Breakfast cereals were, also, covered by the point system of control, as were condensed milk and most, decent, biscuits. Make no mistake, it wasn't a matter of the choice of having a few such items. Most of the war, it was a choice of which one item, or two, you would purchase. Finally, common items like salt, baking powder, pepper, vinegar and the like would be purchased, again, if they were available. Then, after a period that could be as long as an hour, or more, one would leave the grocer with a miserably small amount of produce for one's efforts. Certainly, a quantity that would be completely lost, in one of today's shopping carts. Then, to the butcher. Again, usually a lengthy queue. While queuing, I would look at the ubiquitous chalkboard to see what was available. Only towards the very end of the war, was there a choice. It was beef or mutton or, occasionally, pork. When at the front of the queue, the ration books would change hands and, after checking to see how much you were entitled to, the butcher would offer various cuts from the carcass hanging behind the counter. Depending on the cut, would depend the quantity you were entitled to. Four oz of scrag and would, perhaps, be the equivalent of one ounce of steak. Sausages were, sometimes, available. They were grabbed with alacrity, even though they were mainly bread. Awful, was very rarely available. One had to be at the front of the first queue of the day, to obtain liver, kidney, oxtail, or heart. Living in the South, and never having eaten the stuff, I have no idea of the availability of the northern delicacy called tripe, the butcher would cut my meat in, while he was wrapping it, I would go to the cash desk. There, I would pay and have the necessary coupons removed. The cash desk was set at a higher level, than the shop, which allowed the cashier to view all the proceedings. Customers were obliged to hand their money up and over their heads, not without difficulty for some elderly people. I think, but am not sure, that the prevailing regulations forbade butchers from handling money. Upon presenting my receipt to the butcher, he would hand over my small package and I would leave. Again, because of the queuing, this could take up to an hour, but was normally about half that time. Then, to the baker. Again a lengthy queue. Once more I would find myself at the head of the line and being served. Bread was usually available. However, there was no choice, except between a large, and a small, loaf. Bread was made from the same, universal flour and the loaves were all identical. The bread was similar to a 50% whole wheat loaf, but I do not know the precise makeup of the bread that it was legal to bake. That it was illegal to sell white bread, I do know. I do not wish to imply that I wished white bread. I was very happy, with the national bread and enjoyed the taste, very much. Often, customers would have to wait in line for another batch of bread to be cooked. The wait, at the baker's, could be lengthy, but usually wasn't too bad. Then, to the greengrocers. Here, the lineup also would be lengthy, but not as bad as at the butcher or the grocer. Once to the front, I would give my requirements. Generally speaking, only produce in season was available. Almost nothing was imported. Potatoes, carrots, turnips, 
onions, and the like, would each be weighed on a large scale in a large metal pan. After being weighed, the pan would be emptied directly into my bag. Lettuce, English tomatoes, cabbage, cauliflower and or greens, might be for sale. If any fruit was available, a small quantity was allowed me. At best, this sometimes meant berries, rhubarb or plums. More often, there were apples. Occasionally, there were pears. Very occasionally, English cherries were seen. Most people, however, didn't see a peach, throughout the war. In the same way, I lived through the whole war without seeing a banana, grapes, pineapples, grapefruits nor any other exotic or tropical fruit. These were not shipped, for the duration of the war. The produce available, would be grown in the country and, mainly, fairly locally. Every two to three months, a shipment of oranges would arrive and these would be rationed by the greengrocer, if you were lucky. During the summer months, we were happy to eat the various products of our own toil. In my family's case, this never amounted to much. Maybe a couple of meals of carrots, radishes for about a month, some cabbage leaves, for a couple of meals, and small leafy lettuces once a week for about six weeks, if we were lucky. Never mind, the results, of our unskilled endeavor, tasted wonderful. The weekly food shopping, would occupy the best part of all morning every week. Weights, at the various shops, would differ, but the overall time would average out to, about, three to four hours each week. The total purchases would be contained, easily, in two shopping bags which could be carried, with ease, by almost anyone. There was no fun shopping, in those days. There was seldom any satisfaction. Only occasionally, when some very scarce commodity or item had been purchased, was there any joy. This is how it was, for a majority of people, in Britain during the war. Some, rich and influential people, still managed to get their groceries delivered. These people were few, in number. Most of us were forced to queue, until queuing became a part of daily living. In truth, part of a person's existence. While on the subject of shopping, there was, of course, virtually no credit. Almost all transactions were cash only. Checks were available, for a very small minority. Cash registers were not universal, in that many stores still use separate cashiers to deal with customers' cash. Sometimes, the cashier would be next to the transaction, as in many butchers' shops. Small shops use written bills very often, with the shopkeeper adding each item as it was handed over. Then, with an ability that few today possess, the bill would be added and tendered. The skill shown in ordinary arithmetic, in those days, would astonish many of today's computer-reliant individuals. Nor was this skill unusual. Mental arithmetic, the ability to do quite complicated sums in one's head, was taught in most schools. Particularly in the larger stores, the cashier would be in a special office well removed from the sales counters. In these cases, cash would be passed from the sales assistants in a container. This container would be dispatched, to and from the cashier, in one of two main ways. Either by a spring-loaded mechanism, which travel on a wire between the two points and, just as often, in a vacuum tube connecting the sales area and the cashier's office. Very often, sales assistants didn't handle the actual cash transactions. They, merely, took the cash, wrote out the bill, and sent these to the cashier to deal with. Any change due to the customer would, of course, came back with a receipt from the cashier in the return container. Shop assistants, in the larger stores, would be quite plentiful. Each would have a section of counter, for which they were responsible. Very little merchandise was available for customers, themselves, to examine or compare. Most was kept behind the counter. Assistants would demonstrate, or show, customers all the different choices available. Although, of course, scarcities abounded, the larger and departmental stores tried to maintain their pre-war service. 
assistants, usually, greeted a customer, personally. Chairs were commonly provided, for those wishing to sit down while being served. This was far, from being unusual. There was absolutely no, serving oneself. Everything was produced, by an assistant, from shelves or racks behind the counter, from within a display case, or from stock in a storeroom. Most of the larger department stores had lifts installed. These modern devices were all operated by attendants. The lift operator would control the gates, the traveling direction and the actual movement. Shoppers would acquaint the lift operator with the floor required, or inquire of them which floor they needed. The lift operator would call out the products, or services, available on each floor, as the floor was reached. Lift operators were often elderly men, but young women were sometimes used. People, living at the end of the 20th century, would be truly amazed at the degree of personal service existing before, and even during, the war. It is, however, true to say that the war brought this personal service to an abrupt end. People after the war, generally, were not keen to be servants of any sort and many balked at the thought of being servile. For many people, years of taking orders, in one of the services, had made them reluctant to do so in Civvy Street. This applied, particularly to the men. Shortage of suitable staff, and changing customer habits, forced many shop and store owners, to adapt to the changing climate. Stores like Woolworths, British home stores and others, which allowed customers to help themselves and pay an assistant directly, became popular. More general merchandise stores became, merely, money-taking machines. Then, grocery stores became, essentially, a self-service, which encouraged supermarkets to spring up, everywhere. Gradually, shopping became what it is today. Less and less assistance, and assistance, allied with increasingly more self-serve stores. Incidentally, in my view, the old way was far, far better. While the Allies were advancing, slowly, northwards through Italy after the Italian surrender, it became obvious to us that the Italian surrender was not going to influence the war in the slightest. Out of the blue, we heard on September 12, 1943, that Benito Mussolini, the Italian fascist dictator, had been rescued by a German special force led by a man named Otto Scorzani. As a public relations exercise, this operation was huge success. Nothing, but admiration, could be felt by anyone over this particular exploit. We, in Britain, were no exception. However, that said, militarily and actually, little importance could be attached to the daring rescue. Hitler had an amazing and completely inexplicable liking, for the braggart Mussolini. Even Hitler must have been exasperated, by Mussolini's regular and outlandish behavior. Despite this, Hitler thought fit to mount this daring and costly rescue of his friend. It was an action that caused many people, to raise their eyebrows in incredulity. By an amazing twist of fate, Mussolini's life was spared for only a few weeks. His death was widely celebrated in Britain and, sickening as the photographs of his treatment were, we were very pleased he was dead. The photographs were widely distributed, but the sight of Mussolini and his mistress's abused bodies, hanging by their heels, upside down and dead, could have been found pleasing to very few. Mussolini inspired only moderate detestation, in us in Britain. He always appeared too foolish and bumptious, to be taken seriously as a threat. Hitler, on the other hand, was considered hateful and dangerous. Hitler was detested and vilified as a man, as a military mind and as the Germans' leader. The only thing, surrounding Hitler, that I, personally, felt any warm feelings for, was his German shepherd dog. For this poor animal, I felt sadness. Sadness, that such a handsome animal had such a sinister master. At the time Mussolini was being rescued, I was starting school in Hammersmith. It was a wonderful feeling, for me, to walk into the building and along the same corridors, where one of my uncles had walked previously. 
Ray had been a pupil of the school, some twenty years beforehand. I made certain that I became a member of his old house-Palanswick, every brick in the building, exuded history. It was obvious, the place had its own distinct character, as many old school buildings have. Forgotten, by me, was the sand school, and the one in Slough. I was reminded of the sensations I had felt, earlier, when I attended the junior school from which I was evacuated in 1939. That building, like the one I trod in September 1943, had an aura of tradition and achievement. Once more, I was overawed by the atmosphere of a school building. It wasn't many minutes, on my first morning, before I saw the ruins of the school gymnasium. It had proved impossible to repair this, after the bomb damage of October 1940. Upon reaching the playground, for the first time, I saw that the high wire netting, erected atop the high walls, to save balls from entering the neighbor's gardens, was in a sorry state of disrepair. That money wasn't the primary reason things were not done, very often, was indicative of the times. Regulations, controls, restrictions, all combined with shortages, prevented much from being done or accomplished. This, general, shortage of materials included building supplies. These were certainly not available, for non-essential building, or rebuilding gyms, and things like wire netting for playgrounds. These items were, definitely, not essential to the war effort and had to be done without. Meantime, the Americans and the Australians were progressing, albeit slowly, in the Pacific. In New Guinea, the Australians were advancing continually, but the atrocious terrain made progress exceedingly slow. The U.S. Air Force, we heard, was mounting an almost continuous bombing campaign against Japanese-held islands. Starting with B-17 and, later, with the improved versions of the B-17, the bombing was extensive and far-reaching. We soon heard of a new aircraft that was being used. This was the B-29, built also by Boeing. Soon, glowing reports were received in Britain, about the capability of this new aircraft. It was a much improved version of the B-17 which we were seeing, in our skies, almost daily. However, the B-29 was twice the weight and could fly twice as far as the B-17. The aircraft recognition books recorded, that the B-29 could fly faster than 550 miles per hour and could carry 20,000 pounds of bombs. It seemed an ideal bomber, for the task it was required to do. Number of bombs were, more often than not, preferred to size, against the targets the Americans were, most often, required to bomb in the Pacific theater of operations. 100 smaller bombs were more effective, than one big one, against troop concentrations, for example. Until the need to bomb Japanese cities became an issue, large bombs were unnecessary. The atomic bomb effectively solved, any problem over size and allowed the Yanks to end the war, very characteristically, with a big bang. It is the belief of many, that the B-29 was the most useful aircraft of the war. Lancaster admirers would argue this, however, and certainly they would have a point. At home, in 1943-1944, we didn't know where to look for disappointments or setbacks. Everything appeared to be going well in the end, we thought was almost in sight. From Russia, the Pacific and Italy slow, but steady, progress seemed to be being achieved. The day and night bombing of Germany, and German targets, were continued with ever-increasing ferocity. In the Atlantic Ocean, in November and December 1943, 78 convoys crossed without loss. Conversely 12, of 17, U-boat oil supply ships, were sunk by the Allies. A huge bombing campaign was started, against Berlin. Air Chief Marshal Bomber Harris publicized the fact, to let the Germans know what to expect. From November 1943 until March 1944, 16 major attacks took place. 9,100 sorties resulted in the loss of 600 planes. The loss of the planes was distressing, but the damage caused was tremendous. 
At this stage of the war, we were satiated with information. Photographs of damaged German cities, railway yards, ships, factories etc., were seen very often, almost daily. Added to this, were the ubiquitous maps, diagrams and drawings. This wealth of information was extremely hard to assimilate and, generally speaking, only the overall picture was remembered. Days, when only one, or two, campaigns were being fought, seemed long ago in the days when things looked bleak, seemed even further away. From about October 1943, we had become accustomed to hearing the nightly sound of our bombers, overhead. The noise, often, made it difficult to listen to the wireless. RAF bombers had been heard since the earliest period of the war, of course. But, by the end of 1943, the frequency and the number of aircraft had risen to astonishing levels. During the day, American B-17 bombers flew overhead, in very large formations. The American planes were usually supported, by accompanying fighters. The sound, of these huge armadas, was even louder than the nightly cacophony caused by the RAF. Into 1944 other aircraft became commonly seen and, by the early part of 1945, many of these new planes' exploits had become the stuff of legends. We schoolboys talked endlessly, about the various characteristics and outstanding capabilities of all the aircraft involved. Most planes had their own admirers, but some were universally admired and lauded. These particular airplanes included the Lancaster, Spitfire and the Hurricane. All successful planes tended to be improved and updated. Of the last two mentioned, the Spitfire regularly had far-reaching, improvements made. This meant that, in 1944-45, only the basic shape was virtually the same, as the early 1939-40 machines. A couple of examples will show the span of improvements. The early Spitfire had an optimum performance of 587 km per hour at 5,791 meters. The Spitfire 14 had an optimum performance of 721 km per hour at 7,925 meters. Again, the early Spitfire carried 8x.303 machine guns, while the Spitfire 12 carried 2x 20mm cannons plus 4x.303 machine guns. The Spitfire 14 could, in addition to its gun armament, carry a 455kg bomb, or 2.5 rockets. Early Spitfires carried, only, machine guns. Finally, the engines were improved. From engines producing 1,030 horsepower, engine improvements enabled the last engines to produce nearly 2,000 horsepower. Air power was the new thing. Most lads, favored the Air Force, but I remained true to the Royal Navy. However, even I was impressed with the new aircraft. Unlike 1939-1942, the opposition in 1944 was negligible. Towards the end of the war, in the late spring of 1945, it was non-existent. We schoolboys, and many adults, marveled when we heard of the various planes' abilities. They bombed, strafed and carried out precision raids in endless procession, especially in the couple of months before, and for a year after, the June 6, 1944, Normandy landings. It was reported, I remember, that anything that moved in Germany, or the occupied countries, was shot up. This seemed rather extreme, but I think we all knew what was meant. The planes involved, in these later years of the war, included the Mustang, the Tornado, the Thunderbolt, the Lightning and, the first Allied jet-propelled plane, the Meteor. The latest Spitfires were, also, very common sights in the sky right up to the closing days of the war. All these aircraft became well-known and much admired. However one fighter plane, above all, took the public's attention, especially the British public, for it was a British plane. That plane was the Mosquito. This all-purposes aircraft was, truly, superb and very successful. By the time mid-1944 arrived, we had become very complacent. 
It is true there was still severe and stringent rationing of nearly all food, food that was fit to eat, anyway. It is, also, true that there were universal shortages, of most everyday things. But, even so, things appeared better. Maybe this was because, with the absence of German bombing, we could go about our lives without fear. Certainly, this aspect should not be thought unimportant. In quite a few small ways, life started to feel more normal. I suspect, it was just that people thought they could see the end and were the more cheerful as a result. Little thought was given, to any serious reverses. These seemed impossible, let alone likely. There was a general feeling that things were about to improve. 